episode of Moped Outlaws. And now we're here with a very special guest, Mari Reesberg. 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 <laughs> like Reese's Pieces. Mark is incorrect. <laughs> I did that on purpose. <laughs> Why do you? I was just being creative with the truth. Ah, well, <laughs> you know. Mark's going into politics. <laughs> I see. No. All right. So you are a creativity counselor. Yes. I I have many hats. That is one. Yes. I'm a creativity coach. I'm a therapist, a dance movement therapist specifically. I um, run an internship program for an addiction recovery center. I also teach and act and sing and dance when I have the time and host a podcast as well. <laughs> That's crazy. So you're single, huh? <laughs> I'm not. And I also find time to have a relationship, you know, wow. all the things. That's a very patient individual you found for your life. Yes, they are. <laughs> very good. Is that their pro- correct pronouns? They, them? Oh, he. He, him, they, them. Yeah. All right. Um, so what is a miracle that comes to mind that you've witnessed in an individual's healing from dance or acting or some creative element that they did? Mm, A miracle. It's a big word. Miracle. I think my favorite thing to see that I think is a miracle for people is working with someone who does not believe they are creative and having them have those light bulb moments of recognizing just how creative they are and how creativity shows up in their life, whether it is through performing dance, music, singing, you know, art, writing, whatever it is, or if it's recognizing their kitchen creativity or their creativity in parenting or their creativity in driving or where creativity shows up in their life. So I think it's a really big miracle to particularly with adults because children have the ability to be creative in every arena of their life. And adults, we really unlearn how to be creative over the course of our lives. So coming back to finding creativity, reawakening creativity, reclaiming creativity in adult life is a miracle. So uh, it's all a miracle. It is. You're right. It's all a miracle. And, and, and in essence, the whole meaning of life is for us to be creative. It's not about finding some economic purpose or how many dollars we make or how big our house is. The true gift of this existence is to really lean in and discover our breadth and capacity and brilliance in our creative ways. And there's a million different creative ways, right? Mm-hmm. Not everybody expresses creativity. Like some of us are really good at being curmudgeons. This is true. Right? And that's where their creativity lies. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad I'm not one of them. <laughs> and I sense that you aren't either. I am not. This is correct. I'm glad to hear that. So can you put into words an approach you have with an individual that is steadfast believing they are not a creative person? Hmm. Well, I feel like I come across people who don't believe they're creative literally every day. And the... I, I kind of love working with people who don't feel creative because a lot of it is kind of mindset, how we're looking at situations, but talking to them about what are the things that bring you joy? Is it playing video games? Is it like 
napping? Is it daydreaming? Is it, I don't know, thinking up ways you can make money? Is it color coding a spreadsheet? Whatever it is for you, can we look at that as a creative experience or a creative action? And I think it's important to remember that creativity is that generation of ideas. We're generating ideas in the creative experience or the creative process. And then innovation is taking those ideas and putting them into action. So by separating it a little bit, we can see where are we having creativity in our life when we're getting ideas or we're solving problems or we're thinking up new ways to do something. And innovation is about taking those ideas and turning it into something or making it happen. Um, if you have this idea, I want to try this new dinner meal or breakfast idea, that's creativity and then innovating it by actually doing it and trying it. And it could turn out terrible and that's okay. Like, can we not judge our creative experience and creative expression? Can it just be what it is? And the process of, do you enjoy measuring things and putting them together and concocting a new way of making a pancake or a new combination of eggs that you are going to eat or share? And I think having fun with it is also really important. It's an important part of creativity having fun and playing and being a little silly and feeling a little goofy is part of that creative process and creative experience. Um, So not taking yourself so seriously is also, I think, a great way to kind of find creativity in your life. And thinking about what are the things you did as a kid that you loved doing? Was it like making mud pies or building a treehouse or having a club? Like, what were those things that you really got into is a younger person. Do you find that there's like a thread that runs through most of the people you meet who have the limiting belief that they aren't creative? Is there like a, a sort of universal sort of aspect of trauma in their life or some sort of element of too much TV when they were kids or anything like that? I don't know that there's one thing. There tends to be like a lot of things <laughs> like someone in their life telling them, oh, you shouldn't do that because that's not stable or you shouldn't want to be an artist because there's no money in that. Or um, or if you took an art class and your teacher said, oh, that's not really what we're doing. Like, you're not really going to make it. We internalize that. I know over my lifetime, I've internalized the things I've heard from other people about, oh, it could, or it could always be better, or it could always be different, or I'm going to give you this critique versus someone saying like, that is awesome. That's great. What you did is amazing. Is it going to go sell for millions of dollars? Probably not. But that wasn't the point of it, right? The point is to have fun doing what you're doing. And I think think we lose that. Yeah. Do you think it's actually possible for someone to sell their soul to Satan to create, to become (laughs) ultimately creative? (laughs) I mean, anything's possible, right? Like you can believe anything. So have you met anyone who did so that, that was successful in being creative? By selling their soul to Satan? Yes. Um, No, I don't believe I have ever come across someone who, like, offered that information. (laughs) I know it's an odd question. Here's how I here's how I became (laughs) a famous creative creative human. Well, that's kind of a leading question because I think people misunderstand the power of creativity and that it comes from some sort of external grant. Hmm. It's interesting you say that because I see it exactly the opposite. We are all creative. Right. I agree. I totally agree. And so I think there's, there's like a, we learn 
to evaluate things as our brain develops and we get older. And so when that evaluative part of our brain comes online much later in our life, but when we're having adults evaluating all of the things we do as children, I think there's a disconnection that happens for us to our creativity. From what I saw on your website, you were academically engaged in getting a degree in the drama arts. Is that correct? I do. I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in acting and a master's in somatic counseling, psychology, dance movement therapy. Okay. So it sounds like your tractory was first in this creative realm, and then it had a shift into the realm of counseling and therapy. Is that real? It is real. They are, they're both real parts of my life, but I've been performing since I was three. So I was a very outgoing, active child, and my parents sent me to trapeze school. So I did aerial dance for 17 years, starting when I was three, and performing and singing and acting and dancing. Um, And that really was my life. And I think originally my view of creativity was very much in alignment with Creativity means you are a performer, you are an actor, a dancer, a singer, musician, very much that creative arts sense of what it means to be creative. And then when I went and got my master's in psychology, I was like, whoa, there's a whole new world of what creativity can be. So what was the pivot to... on? To go into, what is it? Somatic? Somatic. So body, body based psychology. Okay. So using your body as a tool for change, which is creative. Um, So the pivot really happened for me, I think later in my life than I'd like to admit, but I'd like to believe I had this view of what creativity is most of my life, but it's not true. So I think the pivot for me happened when I started to dig into what does it mean to be creative and how can creativity help you change your life? So it started in around 2013 for me and combining both of my degrees and coming up with a program that I created called Sustaining Creativity which is also the name of my podcast, name of my website, where you can find me on all the social media platforms. But what does it mean to sustain creativity throughout your life, regardless of what you do? You could be a performer, but how are you engaging in creativity when you're not on stage? Creativity still needs a outlet or still has an outlet in your life, what are you doing? What creative things are you doing that fill your creative cup so you can get back on stage? If that is the version of creativity you're ascribing to. If you're an accountant, what are your hobbies? What are you doing in your personal life that fill your creative cup so you can go look at the spreadsheets or crunch the numbers or Clearly, I am not an accountant. Um, <laughs> but that's what what comes to mind is that there is an ability of perspective to see a spreadsheet as a creative process. Yeah, I had a, I interviewed someone on my podcast the other day, and they were talking about how you know they make these to do lists, and I was saying, well, couldn't that be creative expression? And she thought about it for a moment. And she says, yeah, they're all color coded. Like she color codes her to-do lists in this very creative, fun way that helps her enjoy going through her to-do list. And I was like, that is a creative experience and creative expression in something as mundane as a to-do list. So, Right. So, but even labeling it mundane. Yeah. Like it's, it could be not mundane. It could be one of the highlights of the day. (laughs) This is very true. Very Sometimes true. making the list is way easier than doing it. hundred percent. Yeah. You speak the truth. <laughs> so somatic counseling psychology. Yes. The what body speaks. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> what? Tell, tell me what that is. If I was your mom and I'm sitting in the living room and I'm going, Mari, 
what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Believe me, that has happened. Um, yeah. So somatic psychology is a version of mental health support. If you think of breathing is moving, we're constantly in motion. We're moving. Our body holds information that our mind is not aware of, subconscious mind is not aware of, but our physical body can hold information. I tend to gesture a lot when I talk. Other people might do other things. Um, if you've ever seen someone who twirls their hair or who, you know, rubs their chin, if they have a beard, people who like to rub their chin often, or people who sit and, you know, point fingers or these are all movement things that as a somatic therapist, I would pay attention to. So all these nonverbal communication pieces, I'm paying attention to as a somatic therapist, but it's about bridging the gap between the body and the mind. So we want there to, we want to use this, you know, 90% of our system that we typically in the Western world ignore and we focus everything from the shoulders up. So in your own life, mm -hmm. if you look down and there's suddenly a rash on your forearm, you feel like, okay, what is being communicated to me that I'm not clued into? Is that part of? I think that's more on the medical side of things and therapy. Well, our bodies can, you know, things can manifest on our physical body from emotions and from, you know, more stress of the or... mental health and stress piece right, too. Right, right. So we might look at it from that perspective and also encourage someone to go see their <laughs> medical provider. A dermatologist. <laughs> to make sure that, you know, we're covering all of our bases. Mm -hmm. As a therapist, I am not a medical provider, so I can't actually consult a client that's practicing outside of the scope of my license. So I would encourage them to see their medical provider. And it might be something that we would explore as well, how stress manifests in their body, how, you know, externalizing emotions can show up in pain or discomfort within your physical system as well. I'm wondering for yourself, though, do you oh. see a connection with your physical realm yeah. and your mental emotional realm oh yeah so you're always sort of checking in with all of it like. yeah I mean I think I hope I check in with all of it <laughs> it might not happen every time but I I pay attention when I'm really stressed out I notice physical areas of my body like waving a flag for attention. <laughs> and that is a sign to me of like, oh, I need to look into this or pay attention to this yeah. or what can I do mm. to support myself in this moment to continue to do the things that I need to do or want to do. Um, so yeah, it, it is a constant awareness. There's a constant mindfulness happening of you know, being aware of physical components, mental components, and how they interact and how how I'm paying attention. I mean, by no means do I pay attention all the time. Not you mentioned at all. that you mentioned that a lot of things are stored in the body. Mm -hmm. And what types of information, like I have ideas about that based on my perspective, but my sense of it is that some of what gets stored there is old trauma that we weren't mm -hmm. actually able to cognizantly process, mm -hmm. but there's other things that are stored in the body as well. And, and what's the mechanism of transmission between the two and how does that um, impact your work? What are the, some of the tools that you use to sort of figure out what people are holding? Oh, great questions. I feel like many questions in one, the, I, you're absolutely correct. Our body does hold trauma. Um, and trauma 
in the sense of, um, you know, physical things that have happened to us, emotional things that have happened to us. Um, but I think our body also holds memory. And, you know, if you put your hand on a hot surface, your body will move it before you have the thought that is a hot surface. So our body has a lot of ways to keep it safe and attend to it. Um, and so I think when we are, when I'm working with someone who does have history of trauma or traumatic events that have happened more along the physical line of things, if they were in an accident or um, it may not be, there, there may be emotional components that connect to it, but it's potential, you know, there might be pain or discomfort in some area of their body from that event. And that memory continues to cause symptoms for them that prevent them from doing things they want to do in their life. And so oftentimes giving that part of our body attention or awareness initially things can feel like they get a little worse before they get a little bit better. Um, so it's when we shine the spotlight on a specific area of our body or uh, in our mind or an emotion, we might feel like things are getting a little stickier or a little more uncomfortable because maybe they have clients have spent several years, sometimes decades, ignoring that piece that's kind of knocking on the door to say, hey, pay attention to me. And when we give it attention, the discomfort can definitely become heightened. And so I typically will use a lot of what are called kind of like life skills or distress tolerance skills um, to help us increase our window of tolerance and also ways to help us and help our nervous system regulate and manage the discomfort we're experiencing. So we have capacity to interact or engage with that part of our system. I hope that answered your question. Yes. And I have a follow-up. Please. I view the polyvagal system as a kind of super highway of that information as it gets released and encoded and shifted. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of people that are becoming more and more aware of how that system operates. And then we have these terms for gut wisdom, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And breath work is a big thing now. And so yeah. my question to you is, if that's the super highway, <laughs> what are some of the less known um, nervous system things where stuff gets stored or released? The lesser known, I mean. Or is it all one polyvagal harmony? It's, I mean, you have your sympathetic nervous system, your parasympathetic nervous system, the polyvagal nervous, and they all cross, you know, the intersection that is happening. Um, and I, I think, yes, the polyvagal nervous or the theory and systems is getting a lot more airtime now. Um and sympath our sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems are the ones that get activated fairly quickly. Not to say that our that other nervous systems aren't, but I think the sympathetic nervous system, when we get emotionally activated, can flare up. And then our parasympathetic nervous system, which is that kind of rest and digest nervous system, um, helps us reset. And so I think those two are aspects of our nervous system in the collection of our nervous system that are potentially easier for people to access um, than not that you can't learn how to engage with the polyvagal system. Um, but I think sometimes there are easier ins in terms of how to attend to an activated nervous system. We lost. Wait, we just lost you. You said, Oh, did she freeze for you too, Mark? Nope. A, a oh, little no. bit, but she's, she's fine now. Right, okay. Right. I heard you say we tend to, and then you froze for me. Oh, well, let me see if I can. 
come back to what I was saying. Um, we tend to uh, focus on the, um, the activation in our nervous system. And I think when we are able to regulate our nervous system from that fight or flight, which is the sympathetic nervous system to the rest and digest, which is the parasympathetic nervous system, we start to learn how to expand our ability to navigate the nervous system as a whole and more complete experience. That makes sense. I've been hearing uh, for a little over a year now about stored trauma being passed on to generations. Have you, and you're nodding your head, so you're affirmative. You you believe that is a real aspect of life? Yeah. So there. I mean, we in psychology talk a lot about generational trauma, um, and it may and cellular trauma. And we know in utero, things are happening and developing and trauma is being passed to fetuses and people being, you know, growing in the uterine womb space. Um, and and I, I think there's, you know, generational trauma and then there's also vicarious trauma. So vicarious trauma, meaning if you hear a dear friend had something traumatic happen to them, you can experience it as traumatic because you care about someone else. So one's empathy can create trauma for them. Mm -hmm. So you can experience this vicarious or, you know, oftentimes when people hear about traumatic things happening in the world, um, that can also be, internalized as traumatic and trauma for them as well. But generational trauma absolutely exists and is something that um, many therapists do work with clients on. um, If they're having kind of what in psychology we might call a trauma response or a reaction to something that they don't have a specific event for so there's clinical data mm-hmm. that shows that is a real element mm-hmm. wow that's um because part of with uh mark and i have been very engaged in learning about racism in our united states of america and the ramifications of it yeah and of course uh generational trauma is a huge piece to that mm-hmm. um I have a question. If if we're with if we're holding in our bodies what we're calling impactful or um, traumatic aspects, we mm-hmm. seem to easily access awareness of the focus around those. But it wouldn't it be a reasonable postulate that we also hold joy and that we hold this you know euphoria as well? And why aren't people more able to access that? Like it, it occurs to me that people are like, I don't want to dance. And then we dance like no one's looking like there's something that 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 we have a um, a lineage of mm-hmm. as well as trauma. Right. Yeah. So, yes, we can also experience joy and excitement and all of that is in our body as well. And for many individuals, there is an upper limit limit of tolerance for it. So why do we hold more joy? Why do we hold so much trauma? Wouldn't it be better biologically if we weren't so focused on (laughs) on all of that trauma? You're probably right. It might be better. And I think that sometimes it's difficult and challenging to experience joy when it's – when we have so many rules about it in our society or when we have so many opinions about who can express joy, how it can be expressed, what it can connect to. You know, if you're proud of yourself, can you express joy for being proud of yourself? Or is that something that is then viewed through a different lens of, oh, you can't, that's, you know, selfish. You can't be proud of yourself or you can't think that you did a great job for something 
because other people aren't allowed to, it's a, we have a very confusing relationship with emotions in general and joy is one of them. I feel like here's a postulate for you. Yeah. We are inherently capable of way more joy and, and having that land in our body and stay in our body and be the resonant experience. Mm -hmm. But there's all this conditioning mm. that's part of why we don't. And there's this sociological, parental, and, and, and other sorts of forms of that. Mm -hmm. And that in, in our culture, Western culture, there's this Puritan hang, puritanical hangover. And that if we want, you know, one of the things I was born young enough to be part of the 60s and 70s. And so there was this, my body was formed with this like, oh my God, like, let's do this. Like, yeah, right. And, but then I started to feel all of this constriction and all of these different yeah. sociological things around like, no, you're not supposed to be that happy. Like, come on, dude, like chill out. Don't you mm -hmm. know? And, and I'm just wondering if we had a better practice of the joy of expression which kind of speaks to what your life is all about. Your purpose mm -hmm. is all about reminding us of the creative impulse and how that's really where our humanity lives as well. Does that, does that resonate with you? Yeah. I mean, I believe we would be better off if we had more joy in our life. I know my life is vastly improved when I have more joy in it. And when, and not only joy, but gratitude and I'm doing things that I enjoy doing that, you know, it might be challenging, but I'm enjoying the process of learning something new. Um, so I agree that it would be great. <laughs> we could do a lot better job of nurturing and encouraging each other to step into that posture of less consternation and more flow, right? Yeah. I mean, I love that word flow that, you know, is coined. Well, I don't know if it was coined, but kind of the grandfather of flow theory, Mikai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote the book called Flow about stepping into that experience where time and space kind of disappear and you become one with whatever it is you're doing. So if we could all have more of those experiences or have more opportunities to have those experiences, I think we would have a very different collection of people showing up in space. It's interesting how the mind kind of gets super quiet and the body becomes the lead in that yeah. state. Yeah. Yeah. And I think every, well, I mean, not every, but many people that I have talked to in many different versions of career have talked about finding that flow state, whether it's a musician and they feel like they're in the pocket of, in a song or an athlete feeling like they become one with the turf or one with their bike or one with the road and artists who, you know, lose track of time and they're painting for five, six hours or writers, um, or, you know, I think chefs happens as well and becoming part of that ingredient experience that they have in the kitchen. This is a byproduct <laughs> of creativity, right? Is that we, we find the gateway into what is really our great human legacy. Mm. Oh, I like that. I guess I hadn't thought about it that way, but how fun. All right, so kind of coming back to ground. Yeah, yes. And being a human being that you are, <laughs> I imagine you wake up some mornings and you're like, oh, this just, you're in a challenging space. So what tools have you found in those moments that help you to either accept, okay, this is going to be a challenging day. Therefore, mm -hmm. it's not like you're, you mentioned earlier, the ability to hold more, I forget the word you use, Enjoy. but that begins with an E anyway. <laughs> so what are some of the tools you have that yeah. you too? Oh, there's so many tools. And sometimes when I have a stressful day or a challenging day, I don't want to use my tools. I don't want to be skillful. Like we all have those, right? I have all the skills and tools, but I don't want to use any of them. So big F you world. Right, exactly. Like what? No, 
I know I have them, but can't I just be unskillful? Um, so the ones that I typically turn to is like getting outside and going for a walk. And if I can't do that, I put on a favorite song and have a three minute solo dance party in my office, hmm. or I will scribble on a piece of paper and then draw, color it in as like, if I don't want to do something in a coloring book, more formal, and I'm feeling maybe a little more aggressive or angry or pissed off, I'll get a piece of paper and like scribble all over it and then use that as the basis for a coloring book. Um, Writing by hand. I do some breathing exercises. Sometimes I'll meditate. Um, Sometimes I'll go and just like do something else. I'll go like fold laundry or watch TV or take a nap. Um, if I can't get outside, I always have plants around me and I'll stick my fingers in the soil of my plants to like reground myself and feel like I'm connected to something bigger than, than me. Um, so those are just some of the things that I do when I'm feeling off or frustrated. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned twice now napping as a creative endeavor. Yeah. Which in my perspective is like, what? <laughs> yeah. So many kind of inventors historically have found a way that they get their ideas in the moment between awake and asleep. So they will set themselves up to get into that falling asleep space and then be able to wake themselves up because there's this idea or a way to solve a problem or um, I'm not going to remember who, who this was, but he was an inventor. He used to fall asleep with pennies in his hand and a bucket underneath them. Mm -hmm. So when he would fall asleep, his hand would release and the pennies would fall into the bucket Mm -hmm. and it would wake him up from the sound. And he would have these ideas, but yeah. So I think sometimes we just need to give our conscious mind a break and taking a nap can do that. Also doing a very familiar task that you don't need to think about. Like 70% of people have their best ideas while showering. So go take a shower, go take a nap, go wash the dishes, doing some task. You don't have to use a lot of thought allows your subconscious mind, which is where creativity and imagination live to process and problem solve things. You mentioned you also run a recovery home. Is that correct? I work for an addiction recovery facility in Colorado and I oversee our interns there. So, okay. So you're, are you there on a daily basis? I am not. I work from home okay. and do, I super, I mean, I do go in and sometimes I end up running groups and sometimes I end up facilitating things, you know, it just depends. But yeah, so I do actively work in the addiction recovery field as well. You have any advice for someone who's there on a day-to-day basis interacting with people who are usually in a very dark, traumatic mindset? That's usually what perpetuates addiction. You know, Mm. you don't think like, oh, life's great. I think I'll shoot heroin. Um, Fair. (laughs) So do you have, um, like with the interns, what would you tell your interns to help them stay in a place where they could be an aid to healing? Self-care. Keep doing the things that you know keep you grounded, keep you present, keep you paying attention, um, whatever that means to you, whether if you have practices of, you know, movement practices like yoga or running or some exercise piece, um, sleep and diet are super important. Um, working in the helping fields to pay attention to. Yeah. So you've, you have found that physical exercise absolutely changes a mindset and emotion towards the positive. 
Well, when we exercise, chemicals are released in our body, endorphins. But if we have a lot of cortisol, which is that stress hormone in our system, through exercise, our system can cycle that stress hormone out. And so inevitably, when we're cycling hormones in our body or generating hormones, we have a response to it. Oftentimes it is positive, but not all the time. And dancing. (laughs) Dancing, yes. As a director for these interns, have you created elements of self-care that are readily available for them at the facility? Yes. I mean, I make sure they take a lunch and take breaks and have downtime and get really important also to have you know, really effective supervision so they can bring all their questions and concerns and why did we do something this way? You know, paying attention also to their own experience of what is it like to sit across from clients who are really struggling? What countertransference are they having? And how are they processing it? You know, you explain countertransference. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, Transference and countertransference. So transference typically is clients projecting things onto a clinician. Um, It could be they, you know, their mind, you remind them of their best friend or their parent or someone they lost in their life. Um, And countertransference is from the clinician to the client. So you're, as the clinician projecting onto or being hooked by a client's behavior because it reminds you of a behavior and experience you had in your life previously. All right. I want to take a big left turn. Are we ready? Do it. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) What is angel therapy? Oh my goodness. How fun. (gasps) Angel therapy. Um, what is angel therapy? That is a great question. You so, mentioned it in your bio as something that you studied in Hawaii and you participated in. And I was like, wow, I want to know what that is. Yeah. So their consciousness, I guess, is the best place to start with that. Um, and awareness of intuition. So angel therapy really is about tapping into collective consciousness or your intuitive parts of yourself. Um, I think the oftentimes people are familiar with someone who considers themselves to be clairvoyant or having clear vision. Um, There's three other clairs, like clairaudient is meaning like you have clear hearing, clear sentient, clear sensing, um, and clear cognizant, clear knowing. So if you've ever met someone for the first time and all of a sudden you have like a hit, a gut feeling about them or like, oh, I know this about you, but I've literally never met you. That's intuition. That's gut feeling. That's clear sentient experiences. So we all have these. I would say most of us typically don't pay attention to them. <laughs> and so angel therapy is about tuning into those intuitive parts of ourself and kind of turning up the volume and using it as a way of supporting someone else. Um, So oftentimes, you know, there's ways that you could, you know, clients might come in. um, And this is very separate from like a mental health therapist experience. This would be someone coming in for a more spiritual experience and, that you would kind of have an opportunity to tap into collective consciousness, something bigger than yourself, and paying attention to the sounds you hear, the words that you hear, the images that you see in your mind, um, and using that as a way of supporting someone and helping them work through things or transform or grow in their own life. So, yeah, we yeah. have a lot of symbolism and um, allegory for angels in our cultural reference, but they are intertwined with all these other sort of spiritual dogmas. Yeah. And my experience, my own lived experience is that there is something I'll call fairyland. There is this mm-hmm. kind of uh, 
there's this communication sphere that I, I can feel and hear, and it's through the intuitive channel, just like you described. And so angels to me are beings that whisper to us and help us to, you know, tap into the joyous aspects of our lives and remind Mm -hmm. us that the human condition is capable of being elevated and having Mm -hmm. this other aspect to it. And, and, you know, several times during this conversation, I've wanted to get up and dance around the room because I feel the presence of that buoyancy in my own, my, my own state of being, just being with you right yeah. now. Mari. And, and so I was curious also because it occurred in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. If there was a cultural narrative that was part of the Hawaiian culture that was part of the work or is, am I just making that up? You are making that up. It was, there was, no, I, I wish there was that connection, but there was not in, okay. in that specific training. But I agree there, the fairyland, or I was the kid who spent so much time in the garden talking to the flowers and the plants and the having this very rich world of connection to this magical, mystical place. So do you have any real world experiences of a physical experience of a spiritual realm? Yes, many. Would um, you be willing to share? Sure. One? Yeah. So there, when I would do kind of angel therapy sessions for people, I'm a very um, auditory person. So I hear songs, like I always have songs running through my head. And I remember doing a reading for someone and there was this like one song that kept coming over and over and over in my head. And, you know, as a human who has judgments and like, I'm not the clear channel all the time. (laughs) So I think there were parts of me that were like, eh, I don't know what this is connected to. And it feels kind of out of left field. And so I didn't share it with the person I was working with. And I didn't share it. I didn't share it. And just kept getting louder and louder and louder to the point where I was like, okay, I have to tell this person about this song that I have in my head. I'm like, is this real? And so I tell them and they burst into tears and say, that was the song my father sang to me every night when I went to bed. Wow. And I was like, okay, well, that's, I'm going to trust that that was what needed to come here and right. be in this moment and share that with you. So I have a lot of those kind of moments and experiences. Um, and then, yeah, just, I have another experience of, when I was in my early twenties, I was dating this man and we had broken up and he, he and I had gone our separate ways. We still, you know, would keep in touch. And I think kind of, I don't know, six months after our relationship ended, I went to sleep and in my dream, I had a phone call from him. And that's why I picked up the phone. I was like, Hey, hi, it's been so long. How are you? And in my dream, he said, I just called to say goodbye. And the next day I got a phone call saying that he had died. So having those experiences, like, yeah, there's, there's, it's definitely real. And, and at the same time, you have to be open to it. It's not something. There's a kind of um, context that is again, this conditioning that is somewhat oppressive. That is Mm -hmm. this need for us to feel justified by material science in the way that we approach therapies like this. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, when our lived experience is informed by what is spiritual or magical, Mm-hmm. then we have uh, this difficulty of, of integrating that with our clinical capacities. And there's there's judgment that might come from people who are not able to access that element of their intuition. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do you balance that in your own life? Like, did you feel any concern about talking about this on the podcast because of the, of the impact that might have on your reputation? Or what ways oh. do you lean in to being more willing to feel that angelic spiritual aspect of your life, even though there might be a kind of naysayer out there or a hater out there. Yeah. Um, 
Well, first, I didn't know you were going to ask me about it. And second, I think, I mean, it is, it's a part of who I am and it has always been a part of who I am. And so it's not something that I would deny. And so if people don't agree with me, that is fine. Like, I don't agree with everyone. So I don't assume that everyone will agree with me. Um, and if it deters someone from seeking my support, that's fine. Like there, I, I believe and have a trust that like the people I'm meant to engage with and work with show up. And if someone is not interested, that is a hundred percent fine. Like it is okay. Do you yeah. find that you're sometimes challenged to show up for yourself? challenged to show up. Oh, like daily. Yeah. <laughs> moment to moment. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Coffee help with that. <laughs> does, does what? Coffee. Coffee. Co- no, I don't drink coffee. What? That's it. Sacrilegious. I know. Eight years <laughs> ago, you, I, I don't drink coffee either. <laughs> you too, non-believers. <laughs> I love coffee. I used to work at a coffee shop. I love the smell. It was, um, I was performing and the acidity of the caffeine and coffee was messing with my vocal cords. So that was a big enough deterrent for me to stop drinking it. Okay. We have no time limit. So I don't want to say this is coming to the end. You might. I have, I have to get off because I actually have a client at two o'clock. So we have a very important question. Okay. Um, This is tantamount probably much to our podcast. Foo Fighters or Eminem? Oh, I have to go with the Foo Fighters. Thank the, you. I mean, purely, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest, Nirvana, grunge. Like that was my, was my life. So. That was very well answered. That was, Thank you. That was a lot of thought. A lot of- <laughs> A lot of spirit went into that. I, I feel you respecting Eminem with the carefulness of your answer. I right. do. I absolutely yeah. have respect for wordsmiths like him. Some people have suggested that he's the Bob Dylan of his generation. Huh. Interesting. And by some people, I mean me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All the personalities. It comes out now. <laughs> the truth is revealed. Uh, I, I see. I don't, hmm. I don't know. I don't know that I agree or disagree with that statement. Okay. I can definitely resonate with that statement. Cause I remember like in the early two thousands when the whole war thing was happening and the, you know, mm. weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. And it was M that came out with that song about in essence saying like, are you guys just going to follow what these right. saying? The sheep and, and yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, all right. We want to respect your time. Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to bring up that we have not? Or any I, questions for I feel us? Like we've covered everything. Um, I truly appreciate all of the questions and being able to have this conversation. It was super fun and exciting. And yeah, I I so appreciate the the research that you did into my background. <laughs> Keep me on my toes. You matter. You matter in the world. Thank you. See, we all just want to be seen and heard. So yes. I, I get it. I Creativity get it. is one of the great sources of human possibilities. I agree. Bless you for the work that you've done and the commitment that you have to that work and for bringing a little bit of light into Greg and I's dark dungeon. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for receiving the light. (laughs) Recording stopped.